I remember the rumbling. It felt like a freight train. And it goes on for a while, maybe 15. Tornado tore through our small town like a giant weed whacker. This is Design Safe Radio, where natural hazards researchers strive to make our society more resilient to everything nature throws at us. Do you ever have a time when you're talking to a friend and you just don't want that conversation to end? <laughs> well, we had a moment like that on the show talking with Tracy Kajuski Correa back on episode 16. And today we get to hear the second half of that interview. Dual appointment engineers like Tracy are pioneers. You have to have an understanding of social constructs if you want stuff to really happen. Academia traditionally doesn't focus on solving the real problems, she explains. With her dual appointment, she tries to push the traditional research and education model to do more translational work. On today's interview, we talk about how in the wake of the 2017 hurricanes, she and her team helped coordinate recon teams in Texas post-Hurricane Harvey. She describes reconnaissance efforts as a way to see if engineers got it right. They see buildings tested to failure. Was it a problem with the structure or the codes? Or did the hazard deliver an unexpected load? Unlike with laboratory and computer simulations, after a disaster, engineers get to forensically try to find out exactly what happened. We'll hear all this and more coming up on this episode of Design Safe Radio. I'm your host, Dan Zayner, from the Natural Hazards Engineering Research Infrastructure Network Coordination Office at Purdue University, and this is Design Safe Radio. Scientific questions are you trying to answer when you're deploying to an area like this of you know, a ha- a wind hazard or an earthquake hazard, what are you looking for? Yeah, I mean, you know, when we're doing these, so right now, and, and I guess of interest to this audience, so in the wave of hurricanes that hit um, this hurricane season, this was the first time that we ever, as a um, structural engineering community, responded to a sequence of hurricane disaster or hazards, you know, hurricanes landfalling, though we didn't know it would be three at the time we started. I should pause that, right? This was a hard <laughs> yeah. response. <laughs> Um, we were approached uh, by Ellen um, to have a conversation about whether there would be a coordinated structure response. Uh, generally speaking, we self-organize um, independently, I would say largely, under independent RAFID awards and not have a higher level of coordination across teams. And here, uh, the geotechnical community had this nice model for reconnaissance where they had a coordination mechanism that would help align the research initiatives across multiple teams and send them in waves to different areas. And it was a very nice model. And we tried to prop that up really quickly for Harvey so that we could do a couple things. Like the research questions you're always looking for, right? I tell people reconnaissance is so powerful because it's the day that you get to check if you got it right. right? I mean, that is reality. And the kind of things that we build as structural engineers in particular, they can't be built to scale and tested to failure in the design phase. You've got to count on what's what experimental testing is available, which isn't always much, and it only simulates a part of the structure under certain you know, conditions. And then you have to consider the fact that this is implemented construction with all of the challenges of implementing it correctly and interpreting that correctly when it's implemented by builders. And then in addition, you're seeing what is this hazard actually doing when it impacts these structures and is it actually delivering the loading that we're expecting in the first mm. place? So there's such a complexity of things that are different about the way we simulate on a computer or simulate in a laboratory what a a structure would do under a real event. And then what happens when they're there, closely packed together, cascading hazards kind of happening. 
um, and you get to see how that you know folds out. So your first thing that you're going in to do, and you're trying to do this very swiftly before they clean up too much, before things get disrupted, you're forensically trying to capture what happened. And that sounds like a very generic question, but it is what happened. And trying to distinguish the role of hazard intensity, the strength of the wind, uh, the height of the surge, the you know the potential velocity imparted by wave action. You're trying to understand all of those things, and you're you're trying to pre you know uh, combine that with your understanding of the structure's inherent capacity, right, and how vulnerable that was. Which side of the equation won there, in that house or that building you're looking at? Was it that the hazard was more intense than we expected? That there was something happening in the way that you know, for example, were were, were tornadoes spinning out as the as the Hurricane made landfall, and this was actually caused by a tornado. Was this caused by wind? Was this a combination of wind and surge? Um, you're trying to diagnose on the hazard side what the intensity was and what happened with as much evidence as you can collect forensically. And then on the other side, you're trying to look at was the structure vulnerable? Were there defects in the construction? Was it in an age of construction before the latest revision of the code? Was it implemented properly? You know, how did they configure the construction? Because you could have a building that was intended to survive and for a million reasons didn't have the capacity and it wasn't because the code wasn't effective it was implemented wrong for example yeah um so you're trying to capture data on site that can help you answer the question of what happened on both sides of the equation the loading that, that hit it what the hazard was impacting at that site and what that structure had in terms of capacity to resist that and finding out at what point in the equation and it could have been on both sides we weren't ready the reality is when there's a house that's collapsed or a building that's lost its roof or a hospital that's now flooded, we weren't ready. We got something wrong. And it's okay that it's to say that you got something wrong if you didn't know it was coming, meaning this event had more intensity than we imagined. It did things that we didn't expect. I think a lot of people would say in Harvey, a flooding of Houston probably caught a lot of people off guard. They didn't imagine a storm stalling out and doing that, right? So we always learn from a disaster new things because nature's got something new to show us every day. <laughs> yeah. And especially with the change in climate, it's going to show us a lot of new things, right? But we've got to get ready for that. But then we also have to ask on the other side of the equation, why did we get that part wrong? And that part gets back to this idea that you asked me, what am I looking for? Where a lot of engineers might stop is just looking forensically at how that thing was built. Was it built to code? Was it implemented properly? Oh, I can see they didn't tie this here. That's why it came apart. Great. The next question I ask is why? Why didn't right. they tie it properly? Why was the code inadequate here? Why? And then as you ask that why enough times, you start to realize that, oh, there wasn't political inertia necessary to get the latest code adopted. Or, or any code there adopted. Is, I don't want to say corruption, but it isn't being enforced properly, right? Or there's a lot of incentive in the building industry to use this cheaper material just due to economic, right? There's a million whys behind why you see this house in shambles. And not all of it is simply solved by saying, oh, we need to change the building code, which sometimes yeah. is the answer. More often, the answer is we need to change people's behavior around the use and implementation of the building code. And you that say requires a some lot of those, more research. Than what would you say is some kind of specific examples of those lessons that you learned from Harvey. I mean, the, the political will to not enforce some building codes, there's economics. Um, what would you say are some of the most impactful lessons you learned by asking those layered why questions in um, maybe the Rockport area or the Houston area? Yeah. Um, well, we didn't work in Houston, so we were in Rockport and Port Aransas, but what I should what I should caution is those were rapids just for structural assessment. We didn't have human subjects interviews. We couldn't really ask the whys 
other than the anecdotal wise, right? And when I say anecdotal wise, um, it's more talking to directly to a homeowner about what happened and what they had done in advance of the storm to prepare and how, how they made the choices of the construction they chose. I can tell you anecdotally from the Rockport area, it, it is no surprise that a lot of the feeling about why people saw, um, we, we would hear phrases like this, uh, one quote I heard, well, this is what you get when you hire that contractor. Everybody knew he cuts corners. Mm. Um, or there would be a phrase on the other side of the fence saying, yeah, well, there was one there was one contractor we met. He built his own house and he built all the houses in this community of Bayside. Ones that performed well, he had all built. And he said, I go above the code. I choose to use adhesives and 80,000 nails when I put together this load path. There's nothing taking apart. And so you found that there were builders who saw that they had to go above the code to truly be resilient and they were doing it. And there were people who knew about shoddy construction and already had called it out, but it for some reason was persisting. Um, our biggest study that's running, it just concluded actually in North Carolina um, in New Hanover is actually asking a lot deeper questions about what motivates you to build um, your home with a more resilient structural system, a better load path, um, using window protection, a tighter uh, building envelope, different roofing materials, et cetera. And we actually find it correlates very strongly with political religious beliefs, which hmm. is, um, is interesting. If you have um, a belief that you will be, I don't want to use the word bailed out, but that FEMA will come, the insurance will handle it, you invest less upfront because you have that confidence that they're going to take care of it in the end. For people who were more of, I would say, independent-minded, I want to be the master of my own ship, if you will, they were investing upfront in more resilient construction practices going above the code by their own choosing because they didn't want to have to count on the government, insurance, or anyone else to be the litigators on the backside of whether their family was able to rebuild or recover. They wanted to control that themselves. Some of them even were going as far as becoming self-insured because they were getting turned down for insurance policies on their existing home, so they went above and beyond. Wow. Their own so a lot of this is being driven by economic capacity, political beliefs, how tied you are um, to your government and local structures, how much you rely on them or choose not to rely on them. And even some with religion, uh, with climate change, it became very interesting to see respondents say, there's nothing we can do. The seas are rising, but that's God's will. Um, climate is changing. That's, that's God's will. And so they almost saw some of them um, an inability to even fathom how to respond because they saw nature as something not controlled by them. Hmm. And as you start to understand this about humans, then you get to see how to use that understanding to bring risk mitigation programming to them in a language they could appreciate. Whether that means bringing it actually through the church system and having pastors run workshops through the church, raising knowledge about preparedness, or whether oh, wow. that has to be done through other mechanisms. There's great examples um, of where churches have actually been the messenger for, for secular programming, for non-religious programming and had huge impact. And maybe it's a question I'm now seeing for those populations who really do believe this is all the will of God, how even their church could be an active player in helping build their resilience and not just handing out food after they lose their home. Wow, that's really amazing. When you go to a community like this, like I keep going back to Rockport and Port Aransas because uh, I spent a few days down there with uh, Team Rubicon uh, last month and it was just, so impactful, those families down there. When you mm -hmm. go down to an area like that, how many homes are you able to assess and like how long does that process take? Um, oh, like in the assessments, you know, um, this is interesting because here's where my response becomes loaded. Um, so all of our assessment data 
is um, is actually using an um, Fulcrum as a, our platform, which is an app. And so we're able to move uh, much quicker than we ever could because we're doing uh, app-based uh, work. So that has been a big move forward in the set of recons that have run this hurricane season. Um, I should say our Virgin Islands teams and Puerto Rico teams are running right now on a special version of Fulcrum for the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so in terms of how many assessments we were able to run, we did have different modalities. Our total headcount in, um, in the Texas area right now is 1,685 assessments. Wow. Are in, in our Fulcrum database for the landfall area um, associated with Harvey. I'm actually looking at the map right now so I could actually say the right numbers. Um, we have 1,094 assessments in Florida uh, from Irma and 260 assessments in now from Puerto Rico from Maria. And these dynamically update in real time so you can actually see cool. them update. Um, so we were able to move fast because of the app giving us a seamless way to get data in quickly. Um, where I would say we slow down is when we are actually interacting with the owner of the property. Oh, sure. And they have real honest questions about what went wrong. As much as we want to know what went wrong, they have a real stake in understanding what went wrong. And that's where I would say I do, do slow down because I believe they are owed the opportunity to ask that question and have someone talk them through that or listen to their story. So when you mm -hmm. get pulled into somebody's home, for example, and the roof is off and this wall has has peeled off and water has penetrated nearly everything and they've lost all that they own. I just give them the dignity of that walkthrough and, and talking through what happened, understanding how they prepared, how they evacuated, answering technical questions the best I could, and even providing my report back to them from the app so they have it for their records. I actually do that as a process, but that does slow me down. I can't cover as many homes. Right. Um, so I can cover you know dozens of homes a day, door to door. And then we use drones and uh, a LIDAR scanning, um, a little LIDAR unit to help us uh, cover more ground quickly. Um, but we also try, at least myself personally, to do a human component to those conversations, not to collect research data, though I get great anecdotes to understand response, recovery, and even preparedness, but also because I think they deserve the dignity of that. I mean, if my job is just to design and come up with um, mathematical models and computational models that help understand the hazard, but I don't care about the people who would benefit from it. And I'm kind of a fraud. So mm -hmm. I always take time to have that conversation when I'm doing recon, even if it means I assess three less houses that afternoon. Yeah, that's so important when you're working in an area where you're meeting somebody on their and worst day. I actually day. can't hear you at all right now. Oh, shoot. Um, the audio is completely gone. Uh oh, all right. Hold on. I'll pause here. <laughs> um, yeah, it's so important to have that that human component when you're going into a hazard like this because you're meeting somebody on the worst day of their life and trying to be, you know, the best part of their worst day is a really good mindset to have. Mm-hmm. And they were the best part of, of our worst day too. I, I think um, especially in, in Rockport, I, but it also in Puerto Rico, um, I was, uh, I was amazed at the, the strength of the community, which I would mm. say that's the number one indicator for me of if you're going to bounce back, right? We talk about resilience. These people had come together. They were working together to support one another. They, it's not that they didn't have the expectation. I mean, there were always questions. Have you seen FEMA? Are you FEMA? They would ask us that, you know? um, but they were already working together to clean up, to start supporting one another, to get cold water, food to one another. The food um, delivery mechanisms were running beautifully. They were inviting us to share meals with them. They were offering us a cold drink. 
as they saw us walking down the street in the heat working. And they were, I would say the right word is honored. They were grateful that people came from universities across the country to come and volunteer on, you know, out of their time to come help understand what happened to them and be a part of that recovery in whatever way we could as engineers. And, you know, sometimes it's the worst day of their life and they could be confrontational. Certainly we had some of those. People who had been looted were very sensitive and we prep our teams to understand sensitivity when moving into these areas, especially as we're moving down to Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands right now where the conditions are more deteriorated. Um, we're always trying to have a sensitivity and prep our teams to think about that. But then what well, we are always warmed, our hearts are warmed by how much they're grateful to know that we came all the way from Indiana or we had a team coming from Rutgers that was bringing our mobile LIDAR units and they had done work after Sandy and I, I was able to say to them, guess what? People who were responding to Sandy are on their way now to respond to you. And there was this feeling like, wow, you know, we are all in this together. The number of American flags hanging off of rubble was amazing to see. Yeah. People put the flag up right away and often the Texas flag with it. And yep. I respect that part of Texas <laughs> spirit. That's wonderful. Um, but those flags were up and those people were out and they were welcoming us and they were saying, we're going to be back. We're going to be okay. And there was a positiveness, even when there were tears that I was so moved by and I was so happy to be a part of it. And it's what I've seen all over the world. Um, there's a strength in people that is much greater than a building. And as engineers, we need to, you know, feel, I guess, encouraged by that. And so, yeah, the response there was amazing. And we were as sensitive as we could be and as good listeners and empathetic. That's something I train my, my engineering students in, how to be empathetic as we move in these settings. But conversely, they were the warmest and most welcoming people I had ever met, including being offered a beer or a glass of wine at the end of the day. I thought that was so sweet <laughs> because I know they had very little and they had little ice and they were sharing it with us. That was what really struck me when I was down there. I mean, we we cleaned up a, a lady's mobile home that had been pushed off by its pushed off its foundation by I don't know thirty feet or something by the storm surge and the flooding, and she went to the store over lunch and got us you know ice mm -hmm. cream and <laughs> yeah. she cooked us dinner the next night at our at our um, base of operations. I mean, yep. it was just the warmest, nicest group of people you'd ever meet down there, and such a positive and strong uh, mental attitude. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and like I said, our, our Sandy communities that we're working with now, I mean, they're still in their recovery. Um, you hear the stories of what they did when they didn't have decision support tools. They didn't know how far in the water was coming. I mean, that's what we're addressing now through our new research. But at that time, they were in the dark, literally. And you hear these heroic stories of how based on the fact that they knew where everyone lived, everyone knew every house and which houses had the elderly and which houses had the handicapped child, because the communities were so tight and they knew each other so well, that meant that the mayor and the members of their emergency response team, which is literally the police chief and a couple other cops, right? I mean, it's yeah. not anything glamorous, right? They were able to find every you know person in the community who had a boat they could get out and they start taking boats and rescuing people. And they didn't have a fancy database or tools for that. They knew thy neighbor and they cared about thy neighbor enough to get out and run their own rescue and operations before anyone ever came to save them, right? They were doing it themselves and then they were cooking meals and clothing and keeping warm all of their population as the power was out and it got really cold, if you recall. It was oh, yeah. doing all of that based on the fact that they knew their community. And that's the part that as engineers, like we, we don't always take a step back and look at. The most important part of resilience is that part. 
And that's how they were able to make it through that event without more loss of life and, and get people stabilized quickly. And you saw that strength coming through now and how like Rockport and Port Aransas are recovering, right? They are, are starting that road. Um, and I see it all over the world. I mean, I have amazing stories from Haiti of similar things of how people care so deeply for one another in the middle of their worst day. And I mean, that was the worst, right? They had about 200,000 people and that's a rough estimate die in one event, right? 1.6 million homeless in one event, still homeless largely seven years later. And it's only the strength of their community that keeps them going. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's that human element that, like you said, us engineers, we kind of for, tend to forget and mm-hmm. just silo off that part of our brain and like focus on the, the technical and the design part. And remember that humans are stronger than we give ourselves credit for <laughs> when we yeah. work together. Correct. Or the humans will be the reasons our designs work or don't. I mean, yeah. when we talk about things like constructability and an adoption of a new building system, for example, a new type of shear wall, whatever it might be, it's not constructible. You can get buy-in from industry, you can get buy-in from the construction sector, which would have to implement it. You can't get the buy-in from developers to new technology and put it in their new building, right? So much trust and understanding of human behavior that's necessary move anything technical we incubate in our labs and our research groups out into the world. And I don't think we spend enough time there. And it's probably mm-hmm. to our detriment. It's why a lot of great ideas in engineering maybe never make it off the, you know, the lab floor or off the, you know, the, the computer screen because we haven't thought about what it takes for them to be adopted. And so a lot of our work actually is going into firms and talking to them and understanding, going into communities where we talk to the emergency management people, how are you making decisions about hazards? How are you, you building more resilient and sustainable buildings in other cases? And only through the human conversations do you understand like what are their barriers, what are the opportunities, what do they, what would be the competitive advantage they would grab onto that would make them take a risk on this new way of building or this new way of constructing things and actually, you know, adopt it. And I think engineering has done a great disservice to itself by not thinking of that, what we call the last mile problem. How do you get your idea through the last mile and get it into the hands of the people that when you wrote your proposal to NSF, right, your broader impacts or your motivation was talking about building a more resilient world, right? We need to do this to save lives and property. We're all good at pulling those statistics out and putting in our proposal. Sure. Funded. But who's helping us? And it's not easy. That's my point. How are we closing the last mile on the backside? And how are we bringing humans into that process? Because they are actually the ones that will decide no matter how great our math is, Right. <laughs> yeah, you see a lot of NSF proposals on outreach or that last mile problem. Say, oh yeah, we're going to do outreach to K twelve teachers. Okay, that's yep. not understanding what it really takes to do outreach for science or that last mile. Oh yeah, we'll you know engage practitioners. Okay, yep. that's not really understanding that last mile problem. Yep. So what and do I you- think that that's what we need to do next? Um, and I think. You know, this is, is far more philosophical than the intent of this podcast. But <laughs> no, I that's okay. Because, because NSF was a fundamental research, you know, agency. And that that's its mandate, truly. But because of, I think, the increasing pressures from Congress and the taxpayer kind of accountability, broader impacts became an important part of our narrative. And I, I welcome that. I actually love it. But I think that means that we almost have to build out and reimagine 
what our funding avenues look like or what multi-agency cross-collaboration look like where fundamental links to, you know, translational links to implementation. Mm. That chain I described that we pulled off in New Jersey by accident, right? That was an accident. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the stars aligned, I'll be honest with you. And it required independent decisions by those agencies to all find value in what we were offering and take money out of their budget to give it to us. And then we linked it together. We made the magic happen, but they took a risk. And there was no one telling them to do it or incentivizing it. I think if anyone wants broader impacts to really be impacts and be able to tell Congress, look what we're delivering, we have to at some point help with the last mile problem more than just requiring the proposal, but equip people, as you said, right? One thing to say, you, you do it, but you don't have the capacity for it, and there's no one helping you actually do it, and it's not in our wheelhouse. It's not part of daily life on a college campus. No. You do research, you teach. Last mile is not there, right? And so somehow we've got to respond to that probably more systematically. It can't just be a miracle when it does happen, when the stars align and we get the project all the way to the floor, right, to the, to the field. We maybe, if we care about this, have to probably do something more systematic. So what would you say to, to engineers or, or scientists working in the academic world to more mm-hmm. clearly understand that last mile problem and maybe not, you know, work on the implementation themselves, but know where to go, where to send their data, how to connect those um, different funding mechanisms that can get it really truly to that that last mile. Yeah, I mean, it takes such hard work and commitment. Uh, I guess I would say the following things. Uh, The first one is ask yourself why you're doing the research, truly why. Um, If you're truly just doing the research because you intellectually find it stimulating, because it's part of the way you envision your profession. I'm supposed to generate research findings, publish them, and you know this is my contribution to the world. There is nothing wrong with that. Um, but ask yourself why you're doing the research. If your answer to that question is because I want to save lives and property in future disasters, then you've got to answer with a different response. Mm. Then you have to say, okay, then to solve that in that way, if that's the way that I want to make my mark and every human's got their right to make their mark, this is the way I'm choosing then I am responsible, if I don't want to be hypocrite, of then seeking out the ways to actually do that, which requires a lot more human-centered engineering, which is what we're doing, a lot more interdisciplinary research. And that means cobbling and fighting and piecing together sources of funding that are unique, new programs that I would have never applied to, I apply to now. Agencies, NGOs, and charities, I engage for money, foundations, private sector, public sector now. We have threaded together all kinds of different funding only because we were committed to do what I just said, that we wanted to do this. We chose to have impact on real communities with our products of our research. And that was because that was the way we wanted to answer that question, right? So I think the first thing is you have to ask yourself, why are you truly doing this? And no judgment on that. But if you answer in the implementation world of getting it out there, then you've got to pursue very different lines of last mile opportunities and partnerships. And if you're just interested in what I would call the default in higher ed, which is the traditional publishing and, and, and you know environment. The second thing I would say is, if you are committed to that other path, then you have to stop talking to engineers. <laughs> <laughs> I presented some of my work at a conference um, over the summer last summer in Greece. Um, NASA has this findings from this kind of um, holistic view of the Haiti recovery, and somebody said, "Well, how do we do this? How do we change this?" And I said, "Stop coming to conferences like this." Is if we're only sitting in a room of engineers showing our results and, and nodding our heads and saying, yeah, and we, we want to change the world, we want this to be better, then we have to stop just talking to engineers. We need to start going into conferences and venues where we can talk to all the disciplines. And I think for right now, the way we've structured so many of our conferences, even around topics like resilience, is 
all the engineers are in a room talking about resilience. And I'm sure all the social scientists are somewhere else talking about resilience. And I'm yeah. sure that all the people in public policy are in a different room or different conference talking about resilience. We gotta start talking to each other. And so that would be my next piece of advice, however it looks, whether it's on your campus, whether it's in your town, whether it's the UN, right? wherever that conversation, you can make it happen. Stop just talking to engineers. Talk to your engineers, you got to, but not just to them. And that would be my, my big piece of advice. And that's why I tell my students all the time. You got to get out of your engineering classroom. Don't lose the depth, but you've got to have breath if you want to really do this. Yeah. That is amazing. And I will say without a doubt, this is probably going to be one of the most impactful interviews we've done so far on the show. So I just want to thank you so much for thank you. for this. And we're going to we're going to have to talk further, definitely offline about um all the work done in down in Rockport and um yeah. oh my gosh yeah this is going to be amazing to to keep getting to know you better and um cuz you're part of the the Neri family <laughs> yeah and i was going to say you know our university actually had a crew following us in Harvey and so they did a whole piece with video vignettes and everything if you guys really? want to have that it's online yeah oh yeah them. please forward that to me that'd be yeah, great they, they did a piece called shelter after the storm and they embedded a, a videographer with us so oh my we goodness have all that. Yeah, um, but I know you were asking you were asking for a nugget, uh, and I'm going to give you one last nugget uh, to round out our time. This is a nugget actually from Haiti. So when we started really getting into how Haiti was going to recover, we noticed something walking around the streets that you would see engineers everywhere. And what I mean by this is people have very little in Haiti. Yet people find a way to cobble random parts together and build a cart that can roll water down the street to two other families on a piece of what we would call trash that shouldn't even be mobile. These people were amazingly in, you know, engineering or engine, had ingenuity that was just amazing. We're watching that like, wow, the people closest to the problem find solutions to that problem if you're willing to empower them and listen to them. So we started running these innovation incubators where we would bring people in Haiti who had no formal education but knew how to get stuff done and had very clever solutions to construction challenges, but also other aspects of community development after the earthquake. We put them in a room and we gave them some basic skills in creative problem solving and human-centered design and design thinking. We kind of trained them up with a selfish intention of having them help us design some of the final aspects of our housing model. But what we didn't expect is that they would latch on to the training we gave them and start solving problems in their community when we were not there. And they made these innovation clubs that meet regularly and they design new cook stoves and ways to get clean water and how to handle flooding. And they're working on all kinds of civil engineering problems on their own without engineers at all. Just common sense, human-centered approach to problem solving. So my nugget is one day we're walking out of the training. Uh, we would do these trainings daily with these people who were our natural problem solvers in the community. We're trying to just tool them up to go after problems with their neighbors. And I'm walking down the street and one of them said to me, you know, last night I went home and told my mother about what you taught us and I showed her how it works. And my mother said, where did you learn this? How did you find these answers? And he said, mom, the answer was always inside us, but no one bothered to show us. And it was an indictment on the way that Haitian education was structured where people weren't taught to creatively problem solve like we are. They were told to repeat what the teacher says, repeat what the teacher says. No one trusted them to come up with their own answers. Perhaps our aid response to Haiti has always reinforced that. We'll come mm. solve it for you. And when he said that to me, it was like sunset one night after a long hot day. And he said it, I was like, you're right. The answer is always inside of us. Every community has the answer inside of it. Rockport's got the answer inside of it. Engineers, our job is to empower those people to implement those answers. 
and to tap their ability to be partners in that process, not us over here and then coming at the end and handing them a building code. And the day I realized that with that young man, that the answer is inside of all of us, the answer to this issue of resilience is inside all of us, and that if we're committed, we can help everyone find that answer. So. Wow. If only this was a video podcast, people could see my jaw hitting the floor after that. <laughs> it was a cool moment. It was just an awesome moment. Yeah, these clubs are awesome in Haiti. They're just awesome. That is so cool. We're going to have to do a follow-up interview about that. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. totally. We'll have you back on the show for sure because this is – there's a lot more to, a lot more there, which is amazing. Oh, yeah. It's Oh, my goodness. Stuff. Yeah, their stories are awesome. And, I mean, I know, you know, with all respect, I know NSF isn't really, like – big into the developing world type of fund research they've given us some funding which is awesome we appreciate it but i just want engineers to think broadly about yeah. the fact that if we care about this we must care about it in haiti and bangladesh we must care if we care about what climate change and disasters does because it rips the most vulnerable people apart and there's so much to learn about how the most vulnerable respond because if they can do that wow what could we do in this country we absolutely it's so right? important that mindset is universal yep and we are all one human people, regardless of where borders fall. And that's how we look at our work. We go where the disasters hit and where community vulnerability requires some assistance, or as we call it, empowerment to respond. And that's how we go about our business. And we really don't look at country boundaries um, in doing that work. Absolutely. Well, I want to give you a chance to plug your amazing work with your research team and your students. Where can people find out more about what you're doing? Yeah. Um, so... We are all, um, our, our core group is there in the Department of Civil Engineering, uh, Civil and Environmental Engineering and Earth Sciences at Notre Dame. Um, so C-triple-E-S.nd.edu is where our core group resides. Um, but also we have a, an initiative called Engineering to Empower, E2E.nd.edu. And that is the specific arm that's working on our response in Haiti. So you can learn more about the programming that we run there to look at long-term recovery since the Haiti earthquake. And now, unfortunately, in response to Hurricane Matthew uh, last year, so a, a double hazard recovery now ongoing in Haiti. Um, so those are probably the two most uh, obvious websites to connect with our larger team of researchers. Um, our NJ Coast platform will release um, in early 2018. Uh, we just don't have that fully online yet, so that one is still in development. But, uh, you can learn at least more about us through the department website where all those stories are also chronicled. Excellent. Thank you. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. I've learned way more than I can unpack right now. <laughs> and looking forward to connecting you with you further. What angle, remember when you said, what angle do you want? You know, because I was trying to feel out what you wanted to get out of this. Because we have some really cool stories over about 10 years. And so it was just a question of which ones you wanted. Yep. This has been amazing. And we'll, and if you have more time, we'll uh, definitely have you back. <laughs> yeah, and um, I'm going to send you over the links to the the pieces that were done about Harvey. Um, so you have that, and they have a, an entire website that they have called Notre Dame Stories, and additional footage is available there. Awesome. And I'm sure our team, if there's footage that you're particularly interested, they have stills and video um, and audio. I mean, you know, he, he recorded everything. Um, we can provide those if you need some stuff to make any vignettes on your side. That would be great. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I've, I've got some things to send you as well from uh, from Team Rubicon about how they do assessments and data cool. they use and databases and things so that uh, next time you guys go into an area where they're um, doing kind of that first stage of recovery, the immediate uh -huh. stuff. I mean, they love sharing data. <laughs> so. Yep. Yep. 
So I will pop that over. And do you guys, do you want the link to the Fulcrum community where all our data is real time updating? That would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So basically um, how that part works, we do have a QCQA process that is running, but basically everything that comes in from the mobiles, they update as soon as you have connectivity. So sometimes it's lagging, mm-hmm. especially the islands, it'll take a while. Um, but then what you're going to see there is raw. And then on the backside, we have teams of students who are doing quality control. But as they update the records, they update in real time. So we just tell people that this early after the disasters, not all the records have been cleaned up yeah. and like all the fields checked, just used with caution. And then once we're probably, you know, end of this year, early next year, we should be done with all the quality control. And then, you know, because it's updating in real time, the records will update as corrected. But we just like to let people know, you know, what you see is what you get right now. It's raw <laughs> right. coming in in real time. And so, you know. That sounds a lot like the, uh, they use a, a Palantir based system mm-hmm. for, for assessments and team Rubicon sounds like pretty similar uh, yeah. way of doing it with questions and pictures and things that it's very raw. Yeah. And the fulcrum community pages, um, like the nice part about fulcrum community is that anybody can sign up for an account. Um, so you don't have to be part of the team. So it's like a crowdsourcing. And so anyone who wanted to contribute data could just bring it in. Take oh, cool. it down with the app and start collecting data um, where I know some of the other ones require like a license and you have to have, you know, a uh, recurring payment for the app. They've actually made it free now for the recon teams that we're running. Oh, that's anyone great. can request a credential and then just have the app in and also contribute. So it, it makes it nice. Um, FEMA has been using it like we've had other entities outside of our NSF teams now um, jumping on. So I'll send you the hmm. link to that. Well, that's awesome. Cool. Yep. We'll have more to talk about that offline. <laughs> yep. we'll go ahead and so stop I'm gonna recording here. I'm going to send you here. a couple of emails right now with um, some of those links and the link to the Big Harvey story and, and those things as well. Awesome. Thank you. All right. But have a great day, Tracy. This has been amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, this was great. And uh, I'm glad, I'm thankful that you gave me the latitude to talk as not as much shop or engineering part of the shop talk <laughs> yeah. um, and talk more about these other things. Cause I, I do really care about it and hope more engineers would think this way. So, yep. I'm totally with you. Cool. All right. I'm sending you links now. Thank you. Have a good okay, one. Take care, Dan. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of design safe radio. This show is sponsored by the national science foundation and Nary. You can subscribe to Design Safe Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please leave us a review so we can improve the show. These also help others find our episodes in iTunes. Thanks for your feedback and your support. You can find out more about Nary at designsafe-ci.org or on Facebook at Design Safe Radio or on Twitter at Nary Design Safe. Next time on Design Safe Radio, we have a legend in the world of meteorology, Dr. Frank Marks from the NOAA Hurricane Hunters. Dr. Marks is an expert in tropical cyclone research and has been hunting hurricanes since the 1980s. But he's been interested in how weather systems work since his neighbor introduced him to science when he was in grade school. He's flown through some of the craziest storms in history, including Hurricane Allen, Hurricane Andrew, which uh, later hit his house, (laughs) and many others. He's currently the director of the Hurricane Research Division at NOAA's Atlantic Oceanographic and Meteorological Laboratory. This is an episode you won't want to miss. Thanks for listening.